An American Eagle operating as Simmons Airlines ATR-72 is doing a short flight from Indianapolis to Chicago, but it never makes it. What caused this flight to crash unexpectedly? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. We do want to thank our new patrons, Aqua and Scott. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you so much. We appreciate your patronage. One of you paid with a currency we've never seen before. Yeah. So that was, that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, what the hell is that? And what does it convert to? <laughs> Makes sense, though. We figured it out. Yes. Thank you. We'll send. We need to order ducks still. Yes. We'll send those. ducks out when we've ordered more ducks. So if you've signed up for ducks... In the last like three months. Yep. And you haven't gotten them yet. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll get there eventually. It'll happen. We're all getting now progressively more busy, so we'll figure it out. Also, we are now accepting stories for August and potentially September stories at this uh, point. Is there a theme for that? I put in the newsletter as uh, back to school stories. Of sure. any kind, because, you know, there's fun stuff with those. Or you can just tell us a random story. We honestly don't care at this point. Oh, new merch. I mean, we send merch out probably about once a month. So if you signed up within the past several weeks or so, I would say prepare to get your stuff in August. And we'll try our best to do that. We get really busy, and then we kind of forget, and then we go, oh, we need to send out merch. <laughs> and Life just kind of happens sometimes. Two, two of the three of us have ADHD, so that doesn't help. Yeah. I usually remind them, and then we go, oh, sh- we should do that, and then we don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> we get so, to it. We do get to I, it. I tried my best, guys, but it's two against one here, okay? Um, I am the minority. That is true. Thank you, everyone, for your very kind comments on our post about our engagement. Yes. Y'all have some good jokes. No, yes. we are not getting married in an air traffic control tower. <laughs> not only is that expensive, but, like, there's not really one we can, like do that i mean we could do it at stapleton yep but no but no we already have a venue picked out yeah okay (laughs) what are we covering today nick today we are covering one that i've wanted to cover actually since we started this podcast it was on my original list of like to do's but then people started sending in recommendations and it was like okay we'll just do this whenever somebody actually recommends it and it finally came around we're doing american eagle flight 4184 Thank you to our patron, Chris, as well as Cynthia, for recommending this episode. Yes. Look, it's, I had that prepared. It's uh, fitting that eventually, when it does come around, more than one person has recommended it, because it is not a small one. I'm actually surprised there's not more people. Me too, in a sense, because this is a very kind of famous one. It made I've the, never heard of it. It made the ATR a little bit notorious. So, we'll get into it. This accident occurred on October 31st, or Halloween, of 1994. Well, that's unfortunate. Yep. There were kids on board in costume. Oh, no! Don't say that kind of stuff. Not yet. Yeah, I said. Oh, no! This was an ATR 72-200, with the tail number November 401 Alpha Mike. This aircraft was leased and operated by Simmons Airlines Incorporated, 
on behalf of American Eagle for American Airlines' little express operation. At the time of this recording, we don't know what the title of the episode is, because it could be either of them. <laughs> I guess you'll find out when you see the post. <laughs> Whatever you're listening to this, hopefully that is we, the title. Hopefully we made a decision. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about how this works before, but this is still how it works, where there's a third-party operator that operates the aircraft and hires the pilot and everything yeah, 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 yeah. and they do all that but they do it for the regional airline operation for a major airline so for example if you get on a united express flight united doesn't technically operate that flight and it doesn't technically have a ua flight number it's under for example sky west yep air wisconsin to name a couple of them there's quite a few uh, another example, our episode four we covered was Colgan Air, yep. but was we, also Continental. Yeah, it was, it was Continental it, Express. Continental Express, but it was operated by Colgan Air. Right. So, and so here we have the reverse issue. So for Colgan Air, everyone knows it as Colgan Air, even though it was Continental Express. Here, everyone knows it as American Eagle, even though it's operated by Simmons. Yep. Hence our qualm about what to name this episode. So that's the thing. And the ATR, we've talked a little bit about the ATR in the past, but for those of you that need a refresher, this is a twin turboprop with high wing. It's relatively similar to a Dash 8 or a Q400, but it is different in a few ways. Similar class of airplane, though. Regional airliner, twin turboprop. They still make them. They make new versions. There's even a new version coming. Did we cover the one that hit the highway? You, yes. You tried to cover it and ended up covering a different one. That. Yeah, that was fun. So that one, if you ever want to hear that, that's on a Miranda sode. And then shameless plug. We covered another one that hit the highway. Hold many, on. Many many famous videos of that one. This is not that one. <laughs> but same type of airplane. I thought we covered that one. Okay, what episode is it? We covered it in episode one ten. For those of you who are wondering. Yes. That was also an ATR seventy two six hundred. Yeah, that's the newer version of the ATR seventy two. Honestly, as a passenger, you'd never know the difference. I still don't know the difference. Well, so there's the ATR-42, which is the smaller version yes, of the Yes, I knew that one. And then the ATR-72, and that's just the larger version. And then really all they did was update engines and avionics and call it a new airplane. Now there's a newer version even coming still, which might be electric. There's, yep. It's electric. On that. There's also another one that's coming that's supposed to be a far more efficient version of the 72, but that's all of these things are future. Future. So, anyways, the ATR is still very much around and they still very much make this airplane. Didn't, wasn't there a few when we went to Seattle? No. Yeah, those are all Q400s. Oh, okay. The only place that operates them, the only area that they're operated in the United States is in the south by Silver Airways. And we will talk about that later. Anyway. Yes. This is a flight from Indianapolis to Chicago O'Hare. Not a very long flight. Nope. But this was common. They still operate this route to this day. Please listen to the blooper reel if you have access, because we have stuff that just happened. Very strange. Anyway. The captain for this flight is Orlando Aguilar. He was 29 years old at the time. He had 7,867 hours total, of which 1,548 hours were on the ATR-72. So a decent amount of experience on the ATR and overall. The captain was not scheduled to fly this day, which is tragic. He picked up the flight. I mean, this happens all the time. Yeah, I'm sure we would have gotten into that later, but yeah. it happens. Yep. It's like uh, if you drop a... 
what's what's the term? If you drop a shift at work, if you yeah. pick up a shift at work, you can pick up a shift, right? So if right. You dro- if a shift is dropped, you can pick up a shift. Yes, but when you pick up a shift at work, you don't run the risk of dying. Not usually. No, but usually you weren't flying either, but you know, <laughs> it's not like he knew he was going to die. Thanks for the foreshadowing, Christy. You're welcome. Anyways. Ruining all the fun. First officer of this flight was Jeffrey Galuano, something like that. He was 30 years old at the time, so he was one year older than the captain. He had 5,176 hours total, which was actually just about 2,500 hours less than the captain. In total, but he had three thousand six hundred and fifty-seven hours on the ATR, which so was more than two thousand hours. More, yeah, <laughs> more than the captain. So he was far more experienced on the ATR seventy-two. The flight crew reported for duty at ten thirty-nine a.m. at Chicago O'Hare for the day for five flight legs. This was to include Chicago O'Hare to Indianapolis, back to Chicago O'Hare to Dayton, Ohio, back to Chicago O'Hare. Finishing in Champaign or Urbana, Illinois. It's all one airport. Welcome to the Midwest. You are now stuck here. The captain was scheduled to fly the first four of those legs, ending back at Chicago. But the first officer was scheduled to fly all five at the last leg, ending in Champaign. But he was to do that with a different captain. The flight from Chicago O'Hare to Indianapolis was carried out normally. For the accident leg, the first officer was to be the pilot flying, while the captain was to be the pilot monitoring. On the ground in Indianapolis, the flight crew received the company-prepared flight plan release and weather package for the flight. 64 passengers boarded the plane at Indianapolis, joining the crew of four for a total of 68 people on board. So, not only was this... I mean, it's a small airplane, but it was a full small airplane. Yeah, it was chocked. Yep, busy. Full. Yep. The flight was scheduled to depart the gate at 2.10 p.m. and arrive at Chicago O'Hare at 3.15 p.m., so it's only an hour and five-minute flight, even though it probably wasn't even that long. That said, the flight was pushed back from the gate at 2.14 p.m., so about four minutes late, but was then held on the ground for another 42 minutes. Why? Due to traffic flow at Chicago O'Hare. Oh, my God. Duh. (laughs) Yes. With deteriorating (laughs) weather conditions occurring at Chicago O'Hare. This is called foreshadowing. Uh Uh-oh. This meant that the air traffic controller did not have an instrument flight rules clearance to give the flight at the planned departure time. So, basically, they were held there until the airline actually provided them a clearance saying, hey, you're actually good to go. The airline? Yeah, because the airline creates the flight plan, submits it to the air traffic control or the FAA, and then they clear the flight to go when they actually... So the airline have a slot, basically. The airline hadn't even submitted the paperwork at this point. Because at this point, they were being told, we don't even have time right now. Like, Chicago O'Hare just doesn't ha- have time for your flight. The way that Air Disasters framed it is, Chicago O'Hare, in this time frame, operated based off of priority, not first come, first serve. So any airline that was fuel dependent at this point... So running out of fuel got to land first, and then jet airliners got to land. Last on the list were turboprops, such as the ATR. But they were just taking off. It's still. But they're not going to send. The problem is this flight is so short anyways, they didn't have like a clearance to send him because it's so short that in the time they would have tried to get to Chicago, they still wouldn't have had a slot. They figured oh, are out. Are they leaving Indianapolis? Yes. Oh. So they're okay. trying. So in Chicago, they're saying, we don't have time for you. Don't even send him. Oh, okay. 
flight plans, these clearances are only good for a certain period of time, a certain amount of time, and then they time out. And if it's not used by that point, then they have to refile anyways. Oh, okay. So it's not even worth them filing it to begin with. Okay. All right. That makes more sense. I was a little confused. Now I'm not so confused. Yes. I feel like you wouldn't have had that knowledge without having worked at an airline. Yep. So good for you. I mean, well, that's part of it. I did know a lot of this beforehand because I looked into doing a dispatch job. The air traffic controller in Indianapolis, the ground traffic controller, then advised the flight, quote, you can expect a little bit of holding in the air and you can start them up contact tower when you're ready to go, end quote. The flight crew then started the engines and taxied to the runway for takeoff. Now at 2.55 p.m., remember they were supposed to have left at 2.10 p.m., so now it's 2.55 p.m. and it's much later. The tower controller cleared the flight for takeoff. The intended flight plan showed that the aircraft was to be airborne for just 45 minutes between the two cities. So they sat on the ground for the entire length of what would have been their flight. Oh, man, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks really bad. <laughs> yep. There is nothing worse than having to sit in an airplane on the tarmac not going anywhere. Yes. There it's are, pretty bad. There's a couple of things that are worse. Yes. Well, crashing, sure. Not what I mean. Like, in general, when you're in, like, a, a process where you're traveling somewhere or you're going home from someplace, whether you're stuck on the ground before you take off to go to that place or after you land and getting to a gate, it sucks sitting on the tarmac not doing anything. I agree with you there. It's more of an issue if... It also doesn't have any kind of air circulation because those things turn into hot boxes like that. We have before for f***ing 45 minutes. In like Florida. And you're yep. like, all I want to do is to get off this f***ing aircraft. <laughs> Please yep. get me off. Yep. Don't worry. There's lots of things going to make you mad here. Oh, good. <laughs> we haven't even gotten there yet. Nope. The flight took off normally and... and at 1,800 feet above the ground, the autopilot was engaged. 3.05 p.m. and 14 seconds, the captain made initial contact with an area radar controller along their route and advised them that the flight was climbing through 10,700 feet for 14,000 feet. That was their given instruction by a previous air traffic controller. The air traffic controller then instructed the flight to fly direct to the Chicago Heights VOR. So changing their flight plan a little bit, just it's a little more direct to where they're going anyways. He's like, just... Go there. That way. 3.08 p.m. and 33 seconds, the captain requested a climb to their final planned cruising altitude of just 16,000 feet, which was granted. It's not a very fast airplane. It's not that it can't fly higher than that, but for this flight, not There's really no necessary. There's no reason to. You're going to go flight. up, and then you're going to go back down. Right. basically what's going to happen. Especially with the amount of time that this airplane takes to climb. It's like 16,000 is pretty fine for this airplane. It's fine. The flight reached 16,000 feet without issue. So mind you, that was at 3.08 that they just, they asked for the climb. So sometime between 3.08 p.m. and 3.11 p.m., they got to 16,000 feet. They were not there for very long. We'll talk about that in a minute. 3.11 p.m. and 45 seconds, the air traffic controller gave the flight a descent instruction and frequency change to the Bravo Oscar Oscar November Echo area controller, or Boone area controller. So... Within three minutes, they managed to climb to 16,000 feet, and they were already given descent instructions. Exactly. <laughs> it's like our flight when we flew to Brussels. It's, yeah, it's oh, so it short. so fast. You go up, 
you're there for like maybe five minutes and they're like, we're starting our descent into it. And I'm like, oh, that's so nice. Oh, it was so hilarious. Or it's like flying from Denver to Salt Lake City. Oh, yeah. God, the, the funniest one I ever had. Pueblo. <laughs> flying from here to Pueblo, from Denver, Denver to Pueblo. Long story. Brendan and I did that. Just for funsies. That's the most Brendan and Nick thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh my God. The, there's only one more, and it did involve Indianapolis. It was probably more him and I than anything else. But Pueblo, yeah, was pretty crazy. The captain acknowledged the altitude and frequency change, and about two minutes later, the flight made initial contact with the Boone air traffic controller while flying at 16,000 feet and 190 knots. The captain stated, quote, checking in at 16,000 or 16,000, we have a discretion down to 10,000. 40 southeast of the heights, we're on our way down now. So, let's clear up kind of what that means. They're at 16,000 feet, but the previous controller, the descent instructions that they had given them, was that whenever they wanted, they could start descending down to 10,000 feet. So they hadn't done it in those two minutes, and now they were saying, at their discretion, they're allowed to descend down to those 10,000 feet. But they're supposed to do it in and around the area 40 miles southeast of... The Heights VOR. The air traffic controller acknowledged this. The flight began its descent at 3.13 p.m. So again, I'd only been there for five minutes. 3.17 p.m. and 24 seconds. The Boone Sector Controller was advised by the Chicago Tracon Arrival Control to issue holding instructions to any aircraft inbound to Chicago in their control area. Oh boy. So they have to hold. 3.18 p.m. and 7 seconds shortly after the flight leveled off at 10,000 feet, the Boone Air Traffic Controller contacted the flight and instructed, quote, cleared to the LUCIT, or L-U-C-I-T, intersection via radar vectors, turn 10 degrees left, intercept Victor 7, hold southeast on Victor 7, expect further clearance 2130, which is Zulu time, or 3.30 p.m. local time. So... They've just been given instructions to fly to a point and start circling in right turns to the southeast of that point. And they were told that about 3.30 p.m. they would be given their next instructions. It's currently 3.18, so that's only 12 minutes. Right. Doesn't sound so bad. The captain acknowledged the instructions. One minute later, the air traffic controller updated the time, the next control time, the next time that they would be updated with some commands, at 3.45 p.m. Oh, that's So now they've been stretched another 15 minutes. Oh, man. And this was <laughs> acknowledged really by sucks. the flight. Yep. And all this time, the crew is, like, apologizing to the cabin. Like, yep. Sorry. Yep. There's nothing they can do. If you're ever stuck in that situation, they're doing it for safety reasons. Right. Storms in the area, too much traffic, whatever. They're doing it for safety reasons. So if right. you get stuck circling, don't get mad. Because no. they're doing it because of safety. They're making sure planes don't go into thunderstorms, planes land with plenty of visibility, there's no issues on the ground, all that stuff. Right. Exactly. However, I would understand how you get mad in this case because you've already been waiting for 40 minutes on the ground. Yep. Now you have to also keep waiting yep. in the air. A wee bit frustrating. Kind of sucks, but like realize that it's not their it's not the airline's fault right i think one of the things that was on the cvr at least it was depicted in the air disasters episode was the crew saying we are sorry for all of these delays referring to the numerous delays well because they know i mean and it'll happen on any aircraft they'll say hey we're sorry you know but like there's nothing they can do and there's nothing you can do so getting mad about it's not going to do anything not a thing exactly 
So don't, my, my whole point there is don't get mad at people because there's delays because it happens for a reason. It happens all the time for many different reasons. All of them usually very important things. A short time later, the captain requested 10 nautical mile legs for the holding pattern, a speed reduction, and confirmation of right turns for the holding patterns, which was all confirmed by the air traffic controller. So he was allowed to do these 10 10 nautical mile legs. That means he would fly in a straight line for 10 nautical miles, do a 180 degree turn around to the right, 10 nautical miles, 180 degree turn, 10 nautical miles. So just keeping his, basically being able to fly a flat and level for at least a couple of minutes at a time. Right. 3.24 3.24 p.m. and 39 seconds, the captain reported to the air traffic controller that they were entering the hold, quote-unquote. To that point, they were starting their turn into the hold. The crew then informed the company via the ACARS, or Automated Com- Communications and Recording System, that they were delayed. Which is a glorified text message. Yeah, it's a glorified text message to the company. They call it expect further clearance point. Oh. EFC. So that's when they're going to get their next clearance. Next that makes control sense. control command, basically, from air traffic control. And that their next control point was at 3.45 p.m. The first holding pattern was flown at about 175 knots. At 3.27 p.m. and 59 seconds, the aircraft was still in a hold when the first officer began listening to some music over his headset. What? Yep. Yep. I don't talk about it. It's not consequential. It's unprofessional, but unconsequential. They don't even talk about it. It doesn't come up. Not a thing. Nope. There's also like nine minutes of non-pertinent, unprofessional conversation. Getting to that. Not there yet. What I will say about this is that the whole thing with this listening music over the headset, much more common in like general aviation where you're not going very fast. You're flying like point to point general aviation and stuff, and they build XM radios into the airplane because you're probably not talking to air traffic controller for very long periods of time. And so... You're just kind of flying out over nothing, monitoring, and listening to music. This is not normal in airline aviation, at least not anymore. But they were in a holding pattern. He was bored. So was it just over the radio then? The music? Uh, I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he... (laughs) It's like, did he just plug in his, like, weird CD player? Because he didn't have, like, anything else in 1994? They didn't give an explanation to this. Plug in your Walkman? Yeah, I don't know. They didn't give an explanation to this. It, I don't know if the aircraft maybe had like an ADF, which why would it have one as an ATR? It doesn't make any sense at all. But it, an ADF is basically an AM radio. Over the next few minutes, a flight attendant entered the cockpit and discussed flight-related and not non-flight-related information with the flight crew. 3.33 p.m. and 13 seconds, the captain stated, quote, Man, this thing gets a high-deck angle in these turns. We're just wallowing in the air right now, end quote. I don't know what that means. What he means by this is that the nose is pointed a wee bit high while Uh they're flying in these circles. That is pertinent. Uh Uh-oh. It is pertinent. So the airplane, the nose is pointed just a little bit up. At the time, the aircraft was about five degrees nose up, specifically. I mean, it's not horrible. No. But it's not great that it's pointing its nose up, you might want to make sure you correct that so it doesn't continue to happen. Hey, guess what? Well, I what? know, foreshadowing. So it was funny because in the report they wrote this is five degrees nose up angle of attack. Do the math. They're flying level. It's five degrees nose up from level. 
don't don't hurt your brain too hard. We are going to talk a little bit about angle of attack versus angle above the horizon yeah. here again in a little bit because this is how they decided to write the report. Are you? Because I don't. I do. Okay. I do a lot because it's how they wrote the report. Anyways, we'll get there. Then a discussion was had between the two pilots. All of this happening over basically 30 seconds worth of time. First officer stated, you want flaps 15? Captain stated, I'll be ready for that stall procedure. We're pr- here pretty soon. First officer stated, sound of chuckle. He's laughing. Captain stated, do you want to kick him in? It'll bring the nose down. First officer, sure. And then the, fl- the flap lever was moved to the 15 degree position. The nose was then subsequently brought down. More to a level attitude. 3.38 p.m. and 42 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that further instruction would now come at 4 p.m. Oh, good God. So another 15 minutes. Wait, Jesus. The captain acknowledged the instruction before continuing conversations with the flight attendant. So the flight attendant is still in the cockpit. Yep. Great. 3.41 p.m. and 7 seconds, a caution alert chime was heard in the cockpit. At that time, the airframe de-icing system was switched on. Three seconds later, the propeller airspeed increased from 77% to 86%. At 3.42 p.m. and 38 seconds, the flight was at the beginning of the third circle, the third circuit, when the flight attendant left the flight deck, and the flight crew began discussing flight-related information. Okay. A little bit back to normal. Around this time, a few ACARS messages were exchanged between the company operations and the flight crew about holding fuel, the next point, the next air traffic controller point, etc. 3.48 p.m. and 15 seconds, the captain stated, quote, that's much nicer, flaps 15, end quote. Mind you, now it's been like 10 minutes. <laughs> it's actually been like 15 minutes yeah, it's since they did that. Yeah, longer than that, yeah. <laughs> since they did that. Seven seconds later, one of the pilots stated, quote, I'm showing some ice now, end quote. A moment later, the captain stated, I'm sure that once they let us out of the hold and, for- and forget they're down, we'll get the overspeed, end quote. What he's talking about there is once they leave the hold procedure, the overspeed warning will probably kick in because now they're flying back at normal speed toward Chicago with air. flaps. With yeah. flaps down. Which is as simple as retracting the flaps. Yep. Exactly. Which, and they're talking about it, which means they know about it, mm-hmm. right? Like, are, that's a good sign. They are aware of everything. Something's going to go wrong here. Yes. Something has to go wrong here. Or we wouldn't be here. Right. 3.49 p.m. and 44 seconds, the captain left the cockpit to go to the restroom, which is located at the rear of the aircraft. Yes, all the way at the back. The ATR has a cargo hold between the cockpit and the passenger cabin that you can go through. I know. <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> it was also at this point while watching Air Disasters, I'm like, is the captain going to die in the bathroom? No. No. That's but, kind of the, that's just, we'll talk about that later. That's just one of the things It's like, how? Anyways. While the captain was away, he spoke with the cabin crew at the rear, and then he and one of the cabin crew had about a one minute conversation each with the first officer via the interphone communication system. So, using the phone in the cabin, he spoke with the first officer, as did one of the cabin crew. The captain informed the first officer that the restroom was currently occupied, but he would be returning shortly. The captain did return to the flight deck at 
3.54 p.m. and 13 seconds. So he's only gone for about four minutes. Actually, three and a half. Not that we're counting. Nope. He then asked the first officer for a status update on communications from air traffic control or the company, of which there had been none. None. Just quiet. Well, the good thing is is they haven't gotten more, like, push-off instructions, right? Right. So, four o'clock was when they said they'd get some sort of communication. Right. So... 3.55 p.m. and 42 seconds, the first officer stated, quote, we still got ice, end quote. 3.56 p.m. and 16 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to descend and maintain 8,000 feet, so they get to descend 2,000 feet. The crew acknowledged the instructions. 3.56 p.m. and 24 seconds, a TCAS alert, or traffic collision avoidance system Uh-oh. alert, sounded in the cockpit for just a moment, but the flight crew did not verbally discuss this in any way whatsoever. A moment later, the air traffic controller then informed the flight crew that it should be about another 10 minutes till they were cleared, and the first officer acknowledged, saying, quote, thank you, end quote. The unfortunate thing about that is that is the last time that the crew would ever be heard from over the radio. 3.56 p.m. in 51 seconds, the flight began its descent down to 8,000 feet. The power was reduced to flight idle, with propellers still spinning at 86%, which sounds very contradictory. Because you think, but that's how it moves the airplane. No, that's torque. Different thing. You can actually still keep the propeller spinning at the same speed, not producing torque or pushing the airplane. Whole complicated thing we've talked about in the past. In any case, that's what's happening. The autopilot was still engaged at this time. 3.57 p.m. and 21 seconds, the aircraft was descending in a 15-degree right-wing-down attitude at 186 knots when the flap overspeed warning sounded in the cockpit. Like they were <laughs> psychics, like they knew it would happen. Well, what do you know? Five seconds well. later, five seconds later, the captain stated, quote, I knew we'd do that, end quote. <laughs> the first officer responded, quote, I was trying to keep it at 180, end quote, which is the max for the flaps, yeah, essentially. The flap lever was then moved to the up position, which, of course, causes the pitch attitude and the angle of attack to increase. So this is what the they airplane were- nose back up. Which is what they had done this to avoid. Right. It's fine now. They've changed situations. Right. Because they've added speed. 3.57 p.m. and 33 seconds, the aircraft was descending through 9,130 feet with an angle of attack of 5 degrees nose up when the ailerons began deflecting for a right wing down position. Half a second later, the ailerons suddenly deflected very hard to a right wing down position and the autopilot disconnected. The airplane rolled rapidly to the right, and the plane pitched nose down. Several seconds later, the aircraft stopped rolling, and the nose stopped pitching down at a negative 15-degree angle of attack. That means now that the angle of attack... The airplane's flying forward with the nose pointed more down than in the direction of travel. That doesn't sound great. No. No. Gonna point that out. Sounds horrible. Yep. And you are all missing Miranda's face throughout this. I okay. I caught something that you said. I'm gonna wait till you're done to say it though. So okay. I have a feeling I know what's going on here. You have no idea. You I think don't I know. know. I think I know. You think what you think is happening, but it's probably not. <laughs> you, I mean, whip. I did exactly what you have found for a reason. Anyways, we'll continue. I'm curious to see if it is what, what you're you think thinking. It is. Yeah. Because because I did it for that exact anyways. 
The aileron returned to a neutral position, but the airplane was in a 77-degree bank to the right. So (laughs) nearly straight up on the right side. The airplane started to slowly roll back to wings level and pitching to a higher nose-up attitude from the negative 15, so you know it's actually like coming back up to a normal attitude. 3.57 p.m. and 38 seconds, the airplane was rolling back to the left through 59 degrees right wing down and a more standard 5-degree angle of attack nose up again. When the aileron suddenly deflected rapidly to right wing down again, causing the plane to begin rolling to the right at a rate of 50 degrees per second. Oh, no! Yep. The airplane became inverted. Yeah, (laughs) with 50 degrees per second. Yeah, I would think so. All the while, they're flying through the clouds over northwest Indiana. 3.57 p.m. and 45 seconds, the airplane came back to wings level after completing a full roll. Oh, God. But the airplane was still rolling to the right. The elevators were in a nose-up position when the aircraft stopped rolling at 144 degrees right wing down. So, nearly inverted again. It's a bad time. It's a really bad time. At that time, the aileron suddenly went back to 6 degrees left wing down, so all the way the opposite direction, before returning to a near neutral position. 3.57 p.m. in 48 seconds, the airplane began rolling back toward wings level, when the airspeed increased through 260 knots. Oh! And the nose pitch attitude decreased past 60 degrees nose down. So they're still pitching down at this point. Bad, 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 bad. Part of that is because, okay, let me explain why it's still increasing past 60 degrees nose down is because they're inverted. Yeah. And the al- the elevators are pulling up. Yes. So they're actually pulling Increasing toward the ground. Toward, yeah, because <laughs> they're upside down. Yeah, yeah it's bad. But they're slowly coming back to wings level the other direction. Back to upright. Slowly. Slowly. The airplane then passed through 6,000 feet. They continued to roll back to wings level. As the airplane passed through 90 degrees right wing down, so now they're just straight up and down to the right, the pitch attitude peaked at 73 degrees nose down. So they're pointed also nearly straight down. The airspeed had now increased through 300 knots. The airplane was continuously experiencing about two to two and a half G's as they descended through 4,900 feet. 3.57 p.m. and 55 seconds, the airplane experienced over three G's as it came back to wings level and was slowly pitching the back nose up. At that time, the ground proximity warning system sounded terrain. Whoop, whoop. They were now descending through 1,700 feet. Even though things seemed to be getting better, as they seemed to be leveling off, the altitude was not. The airplane was not in a good situation, as it was descending at about 500 feet per second. Not per minute. Which is ungodly. Normal. A normal descent for an airplane is about 2,500 to 1,500 feet per minute. Not 500 feet per second. That's insane. They were now flying at over 375 knots with a pitch attitude of 38 degrees nose down and slowly increasing back to nose level, but they were experiencing about 3.6 Gs. The airplane suddenly popped out below the clouds and struck the ground just seconds later in a wet soybean field. At that time, the airplane was partially inverted in a left wing down and nose down attitude. 
The aircraft struck with such speed and force that it completely disintegrated on impact, leaving nothing resembling an aircraft whatsoever. And unfortunately, all 68 on board perished instantly in the crash. Now, for a little bit of perspective on just exactly how fast everything happened, because it was absolutely insane, it basically all took place in the span of about 20 seconds. Which is insane. 20 seconds from flying level to impacting the ground. All of this. Everything I just explained. So, a lot now, of things are going through my head now. Yes. So, now, of okay. course, there's a lot of things I didn't put in there. Of course. Which I'm sure we'll get into Christy's part. Yes. A few things I want to note before we move on. I'm sure someone else caught it, including me. Yep. Said there was something about icing. Yeah. Good call. That can be a huge problem. Yes. yes. And it can cause stuff to malfunction. Yes. Yes. So, I'm assuming it might have something to do with that. Yes. Okay. Also, it probably has something to do with the right ailerons, because yes. they're doing shit they're not supposed to. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, it, it's... Mm. You're not wrong on any of these accounts. Yeah, I was like, I caught that. I was like, you said icing. I heard yes. that. All I right. caught that. I but threw in also... a few different things to throw you off. Nope, yeah. I heard that first. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, let me get into it. <laughs> This investigation was performed by the good old NTSB, or the National Transportation Safety Board. The lead investigator in this situation was Greg Fife, who is actually now a reporter for NBC and was mentioned in an article in Nine News this morning. Hey. He's their aviation specialist for NBC, which that doesn't mean that he can't work his normal job, too. No, but I thought when I read the article this morning on how heat affects takeoffs in Denver with the high altitude, it said, Greg Fife. I'm like, I can picture his face. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was on the episode? Because he's on everything. Both black boxes, surprisingly, were found and in very different conditions. The CVR casing had a couple of dents and dings, but everything inside was in great condition. Huh. That's pretty miraculous. The FDR had a lot more dents and dings. It had extreme impact damage both inside and outside, but the memory module unit was intact with no internal damage, and all but the last second of data were recoverable. Brilliant. I mean, that's going to be real important. It's very important. The debris field, which I just showed Miranda a picture of. It'll be on the website. There's not a lot left. It's, it really is hard to tell that it was an airplane. It's... It literally just it looks like disintegrated. a. It looks like a field, and, and I hate to put it this way, but it looks of like confetti. a confetti. A field of confetti or trash. Just like, looks like somebody's yeah. trash bag just exploded in a field. Yeah. That's all it looks like. That's it. It's horrible. On that note, the debris field was quickly declared a biohazard. For many reasons. Not the first time we've heard of this happening. First off, there's jet fuel everywhere. Well, there's that. And unfortunately, there's also body parts. All on board had a cause of death described as, quote, I'm sorry, fatal injuries due to multiple anatomical separations secondary to velocity impact of aircraft accident. Ew. End quote. Mm-hmm. I am so sorry. I hate it. Uh, yeah. But it's not wrong. But- oh, that's exactly what happened. The one thing you kind of have to put in perspective in this is that it happened so fast. They couldn't have experienced it. They really didn't experience no, anything. No, they probably... And that's it. Exactly. I still hate it. I can't imagine being those the investigators. The only unfortunate thing in all of that is that the flight crew knew it was happening. 
And I mean, I, it's not that everybody else didn't know something was wrong. Yeah. But the flight crew the, saw it. The pain experience wasn't there for anybody. Well, and I'm sorry. I know we're I know we're gonna go on. But this is morbid, and I yeah we don't normally talk about the morbid stuff. But yeah, but the fact that and I I know we'll get into the whole why this happened in a second. But I'm assuming that they tried their hardest to try to fix whatever the problem was. They did nothing wrong. And. They literally, it's kind of like, um, if you've ever listened to my first Miranda episode, it was about Alaska Airlines flight 261. And it, it's kind of similar to that, only it's a different situation, obviously, but the pilots saw it coming, but there was nothing they could do about it. This is kind of the same situation. So speaking of the flight crew, both flight crew members' bodies were so unidentifiable through conventional methods that the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, who we've spoken of very recently ended up identifying them using quote-unquote deoxyribonucleic acid protocols. <clears throat> DNA. DNA. I mean, that makes sense. They had to make it sound all fancy. This accident, by the way, happened in Roselawn in Indiana, which is just a tiny town in northwest Indiana. But apparently the phrase Roselawn is now just notorious in aviation for, for this, this crash. accident, because there's a lot of things we'll, we'll get into. If anyone cares, both crew tested negative for any pertinent substances. I didn't think they were under the influence no. of anything. It didn't seem that way. It just seemed like they were really bored. Yeah. From the wreckage itself, investigators were able to determine quite a bit. From the wreckage pattern that spread out like a fan from the first impact point, they knew that this was a shallow but very fast impact. They also found that the engines, or power plants, if you wish, were operating at the time of impact. They had the appropriate scratch marks internally as well as damage to the propellers that would indicate power production at the time of impact. Between these two things, they found that the crew had some level of control over the airplane at the time of impact, but something made them lose control in the first place. Let's consult with a flight data recorder. The FDR revealed a sudden autopilot disconnect, uncommanded aileron deflection, and rapid roll. That definitely sounds like loss of control, but what started this series of events? Given the weather in the area, investigators quickly came to suspect ice, as Miranda did. And the crew had been holding for 39 minutes before the crash. When ice accumulates on the wings, it changes the aerodynamic properties. It requires more airspeed to maintain the same level of lift, and if it goes unaddressed, ice can affect the control surfaces on the wings. What control surfaces are on the wings? Ailerons. What yep. do ailerons control? Turn. Roll. Okay, yeah, good train of thought. It has potential. Investigators interviewed other pilots who had been flying in the area, and they reported there was indeed icing. But they it shouldn't have brought down a plane. It was classified as slight to light to moderate icing. There's also de-icing protocols and stuff on planes to help with this. You might have caught that I said that they turned it on. Your segues are 10 out of 10. Yeah, thanks. The ATR-72 is equipped both with heated surfaces on the windshield and propellers. I didn't know that. As well as pneumatic boots on the leading edge of the wing. We've covered boots before, haven't we? We covered it in episode 4, actually. Kogan Air, I thought so. I was like... We've covered almost this exact thing before. These black surfaces on the leading edge of the wings inflate with air, causing any ice buildup to pop off. Yep. Did the crew have these systems on? Yes. The FDR says yes. Definitively. Also, the CVR said yes. That too. 
At 3.40, the level 3 ice protection system was activated, and the propeller speed was increased to 86%. Both this and the CVR reflect that the crew wasn't indeed aware of the icing and were actively trying to mitigate the risk. They had done everything correctly. Just to point this that out. This is all per procedure. Yeah. And it seems that way. So was something wrong with the anti-ice system? Good question. Investigators took the debris from these parts to France, which is where ATRs are built, yep. to consult with the manufacturer. But all the parts were working correctly. And the manufacturer insisted it had to have been pilot error of some kind. Haven't we heard this before? No way was aerospatial to blame. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. And so thought the investigators. They began looking into previous instances of upsets on the ATR in icing conditions, trying to see if there were similar patterns. But I'll come back to that in a moment. A pertinent character this, to this story who was interviewed in the Air Disasters episode is pilot Stephen Frederick. At the time, he was a first officer for American Eagle, and he, along with other pilots, had expressed concern about American Eagle's ATR fleet in icing conditions. In fact, the day of the crash, he had been flying in the same area and asked his captain to make a pilot report or PIREP about the icing conditions, but the captain never did. This is how ATR was actually cleared of fault. They were never aware of icing. They were only aware of lightning. And he holds that to this day, that maybe he could have prevented this. That's a hard one. That's not on him, though. That's on the captain. No, but... I understand the sentiment, though. It's the guilt. It's a form of survivor's guilt. I, I mean, I get it because he was like, I knew about it, and, and I tried got- to get it to, you know. It's. I would say I would be upset with the captain. It gets worse. He should have. Three weeks after the crash, First Officer Frederick and the other pilots began circulating brochures about the dangers of flying the ATR in icing, and Frederick had a particular tie to this other than having flown in the same area and same time. He and the accident first officer were good friends. They had graduated flight school together. So he felt particularly guilty. When we say that they were circulating flyers, they were circulating them to the passengers. Oh. Damn. The two uh, first officers, since I think they were both out at the time, had spoken of the icing danger in the ATR before. And before the fateful day, the accident first officer had eerily said that he would probably end up dying from icing in the ATR. Wow, that's horrifying. Joking at the time, of course, but... Not joking. They also knew that this is a very real danger. A month after the crash, a group of American Eagle pilots went on strike, refusing to fly after the cries went unanswered, leading to canceled flights. Frederick even anonymously went on the news to voice his concern. So now the public is breathing down the neck of investigators. So back to the pattern of accidents and incidents. One such case was an incident in December of 1988 in Wisconsin, where an American Eagle ATR-42 was on approach in freezing rain and drizzle. The crew reported hearing a vibration in the tail getting louder and louder before they suddenly lost control. They specifically reported that they rolled, and it felt like the control column wasn't even connected to anything. They stalled without any stall warning, and the only thing that got them out of the stall at 1,200 feet above the ground... First of all, ah, yeah, yeah, <laughs> brown pants much, yeah, was increasing engine speed from 86%, which is what the accident crew had it at, to 100%, and they suddenly recovered. Another flight in October of 1987 wasn't so lucky. 
An ATR-42 crashed in the Alps, killing everyone on board in icing conditions, but the report ultimately blamed pilot error. The ATR, both models, had 24 roll control incidents since 1986. That's a lot. That's That's a lot. Of those, 13 were icing-related. Of those, five occurred in freezing rain and drizzle and had uncommanded aileron deflections, including that Wisconsin flight. The National Center of Atmospheric Research, which may or may not be based in Colorado, became involved with the investigation. They found these to be instances of a little-known phenomenon to this point called supercooled large droplets. Which is a little bit contrary to what you think. Despite the name, these are actually 100 times smaller than normal raindrops, between 100 and 2,000 microns, and form in near-freezing condition, but not quite freezing. Once they come into contact with something solid, they freeze. The center analyzed the weather from the day of the accident and found there to be the exact temperatures at negative 3 degrees Celsius for such droplets, known as SLDs, but there wasn't hardly any ice in the cloud further suggesting the presence of SLDs. So it's almost freezing, just not quite. Okay, so what? We still have a functioning anti-ice system that should fend that off, right? Wrong. Once the SLDs hit the wings, they slide a little bit back from that leading edge before freezing, creating a ridge of ice right behind the boot. Tragic. Yes. Because this is technically freezing rain and not just ice, the way that ice normally forms on wings, meant that it had the time to slide rearward just after the boot and then condense Tragic. And, I mean, we've talked about this before when we talked about Colgan Air, but the boots, they don't really, they don't work great. I mean, they they do their job. They work. For leading edge stuff, but, like, in instances like this, obviously, they're not... Mm-hmm. Great. Yep. So as the ridge of ice grows in height, in this case up to a centimeter tall, Ooh. it creates vortices behind the wing, which then force the aileron upward on the right side in this instance, forcing the control column to the right with 250 pounds of force. And these are not hydraulically controlled control surfaces. These are manually controlled. In analyzing the flight data recorders from the previous seemingly identical flights, they all had similar, if not the same, aileron actuations. Let's test this further. With the help of NASA. Thanks, NASA. They decided to run a little experiment. They had a U.S. Air Force tanker fly just ahead of an ATR and release supercooled large droplets dyed yellow onto the white test plane. The test pilots then did the same things that Flight 4184 did on descent. It actually turned out that the crew had inadvertently aggravated their situation. The captain on the faded flight had noticed that during their holding pattern, they were nose high, which can be uncomfortable for passengers. So instead, he extended the flaps to 15 degrees, lowering the nose. This drastically increased the ice ridge accumulation behind the de-icing boot on each side. But there wasn't really an effect until they had descended to 8,000 feet, where they sped up and hit the overspeed warning, so they retracted the flaps that were giving them that extra lift and wing surface area. The airplane also pitched nose up with an angle of attack of 5 degrees to maintain the preset vertical speed for descent. Now the vortices were in direct contact with the ailerons instead of having that flap behind them. And it was all over. Weirder though, explainable? The stall warning didn't go off even though they stalled. 
They weren't stalling, though, from a steep angle of attack, which is the trigger for that warning. Yep. Right. Here's the last sequence of the accident flight. The vortices caused the aileron hinge moment to reverse, causing a rapid deflection to right wing down, and the autopilot couldn't control the aileron deflection, so it disconnected. A quarter of a second later, the ailerons were f- fully deflected, and the plane rolled to 77 degrees right wing down. The crew input a nose-down command, which reduced the angle of attack, trying to get out of the stall. They also commanded the ailerons to left wing down and were able to get back towards wings level. The crew applied a little bit of left rudder and nose up, and the bank angle reduced to 55 degrees right wing down. But as the angle of attack increased with that nose up, the aileron hinge moment reversed again, so they banked more to the right once again. They rolled one and a quarter times, speeding up to 250 knots and a vertical acceleration of 2 Gs. After 9 seconds, they stopped inputting nose up, and the angle of attack decreased under 5 degrees, so the airflow over the right aileron was corrected, and the ailerons went a bit to left wing down before returning to neutral. And the plane was returning to wings level, but they're still at a pitch of 73 degrees nose down, so the crew began pulling up once more as they are descending at 400 feet per second. Their indicated airspeed is 327 knots, and though returning to wings level, they are still at 50 degrees right wing down with a vertical acceleration of 2.3 Gs. Three seconds later, their wings level with an acceleration of 3 Gs, trying to pull up, and the GPWS begins sounding. 1.7 seconds later, they're at 3.7 Gs, and the first officer is swearing right as they break through the bottom of the clouds, and a loud crunching sound is heard. It happens so fast. It all happened so fast. So, question. Mm-hmm. If they had continued to have nose down, because, I mean, they didn't have a lot of altitude to recover, don't get me wrong, but if they had continued to do that, would have it eventually pulled up? If they had two to 3,000 feet more of altitude, they would have recovered. They could have recovered the airplane. Damn. That is per the Air Disasters episode, not the report, just for the record. But there is a lot, when you look at the data, that... I mean, they were, they were, they were starting to up. be in a controlled situation where they could start to recover the airplane, but it was too late. It's also, to some extent, hard to say because they definitely overstressed that airframe. Oh, way overstressed. Well, so much so, actually, and I didn't talk about this yet because it's in the findings. They overstressed it so much so that actually they said it just before the point of impact, actually the furthest points of the wings actually failed. So they, they snapped. I read that in the report and then also didn't, so I was I didn't include that because I wasn't 100% sure. Mm-hmm. It's in the findings. We'll talk about it. But I'm not done. I had a question while watching the Air Disasters episode that never got addressed, but they addressed it in the report. <laughs> Why didn't the left-wing aileron do the same thing? Right. More tests were done in the NASA Lewis icing tunnel, which is a thing. Yep. Where they found that pieces of the ice ridge would shed randomly along the span of the wing, leading to broken and jagged ridges. This partial ice shedding may have led to an asymmetry in icing, such that the right aileron had the hinge moment reversal, but the left one didn't. So pieces of ice are just flying off at random. It could have been very well the other way. It could have been both, and then it wouldn't have been as bad. No, because it would have equaled out. Yep. And now I have a fun little paragraph to read from the report. Quote, 
The safety board recognizes that the risk of another ATR-42 or 72 accident resulting from an uncommanded aileron excursion and freezing drizzle slash freezing rain has been reduced by the addition of extended de-ice boots, improved operational procedures, extensive crew training, and heightened awareness by pilots. Because wind tunnel and in-flight tanker tests have been performed for only a limited range of icing and flight conditions, the safety board remains concerned whether, even with the improvements, the airplane can be controlled under all naturally occurring combinations of conditions of liquid drop size and condition, temperature, airplane configuration, load factor, speeds, and time of exposure. Moreover, the safety board found that ATR's post-Roselawn brochure entitled ATR Icing Conditions Procedures still does not adequately address or clearly represent the exact nature of the ATR ice-induced aileron hinge moment reversal, end quote. Yeah, but I think it's important that they got that information out to the public. They did, but the NTSB saying they didn't do enough, and they're not sure anything will ever be enough. Unless they fix it. Foreshadowing that I gave you before we even ever got into what was happening with this accident, you might have caught that I said where these airplanes fly. He said it was south. Yeah. You know why? Because it's warm. Yeah. These airplanes were pretty much restricted to warm weather only, even to this day. The last part of the analysis actually spans most of the analysis, but was glossed over in the air disasters episode, and I'm honestly going to do the same because we will address it far more in the recommendations section. Long story short, the FAA relied heavily on the French DGAC to certify the ATR and its de-icing capabilities and just signed off on it because they did. Yep. They didn't go back and check over the work, you know, trust but verify. Good job, FAA. Yeah. So that's all I got. Want to take a break? Yeah, (laughs) sweet Jesus. And we'll come back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay, we're back. Let's do some findings, some probable causes and some recommendation. And yes, it really goes exactly like that. So for the findings, there were 43 of these. Oh, please, God, tell me we're not doing We are not findings. doing 43 of these. Thank you. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm doing half of that. Oh, good. Because a lot of these, it's just not, it's just not necessary. But we're going to get into it. They found that there was no evidence of an aircraft structural or system failure that would have either been causal or contributing to the accident. But it's also hard to say since it was disintegrated. Excuse me. The airplane caused this. I mean, it wasn't... Okay. The airplane wasn't broken when this happened, but it wasn't functioning. No. (laughs) No, but nothing broke. It wasn't a malfunction of parts, though. Like, or systems. It was a malfunction of design. Exactly. Different thing. Yep. They found that Flight 4184 encountered a mixture of rime and clear airframe icing in supercooled cloud and drizzle slash raindrops. Some drops were estimated to be greater than 100 microns in diameter, and some were as large as 2,000 microns in diameter. This is why they get the term large, supercooled large droplets, even though... They're not large. They're not. They're way smaller than like a raindrop. But the whole point is they're much larger than normal frozen molecules are 
So this is why this is a problem. Yeah. It's a very specific size of drop that... When we were talking this. about, you know what it reminded me of is when it started raining at the black beaches when we were on vacation. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it reminded me of. Yes. Yeah. It's, and it's like Freaking little cold. tiny little pinprick little f- <laughs> drops. But, but they it, collect. And they soak oh, you completely. I, I always say that is the most drenching kind of rain. The the weirdest thing to me, so I wear glasses, so I'm not used to being super affected by rain, mm-hmm. but it collected on my eyelashes, and I just couldn't see because the water just got in my eyes in a completely mm-hmm. different way. Like, my eyelashes were heavy. Yep. Yep. Now imagine flying through that I'm at very so fast good. speeds. No so it ices over. Very quickly. Very quickly. And much colder than conditions we were in. Yes. They found that safety would be enhanced if the hazardous in-flight weather advisory services information were presented more consistently and had included all of the information pertinent to the safety of flight, such as the altitudes of the icing conditions, the intensity and type of icing, and the location of the actual or expected icing conditions. Talk a little bit more about this in the recommendations, but what they're looking for is what they call a nowcast, something that's a lot more accurate about this is exactly the altitude at which icing is occurring what kind of icing is occurring there because there's so much more technology now they can kind of do those kinds of things atc didn't have access to that information right which is why they were not found to be at fault right right they found that the flight crew's actions would not have been significantly different even if they had received the available air mets which we didn't really talk a whole lot about air mets but this is when there is going to be known types of conditions in a certain area They'll create these large areas called airmet. Yeah. And this is information that anybody can look up at any given time. This is all public information where airmets are and such. This is very good information for pilots. And airmets, for example, this one could say icing conditions expected in an airmet. That doesn't mean you can't fly there. That just means you should Be expect careful. that you might fly into icing conditions in that area. There were airmets this day for icing. They were not in the weather packet handed to the pilots. They were not required to be handed to the pilots in that air weather packet. Which is crappy. Yep, this has changed. Also, these days, what with the advent of things like ForeFlight and all of the many different softwares that they use on tablets in aviation, they can get this information in the cockpit at any given time anywhere on Earth. So... This is now immediate information to them that doesn't necessarily have to be included in the weather information given to the pilots. It's still useful, though. They found that the flight crew's actions were consistent with their training and knowledge. Ta-da. Did you notice all the weird things that kind of happened, though? How kind of lackadaisical it was in the cockpit? They do bring this up a few more times, but it's going to happen in the recommendations. It didn't affect the accident. It didn't. And that is one big key thing. Yeah, but it shouldn't be... Condoned? No. Yeah. They don't think so either. We have this 10,000 foot rule. They were at 10,000 feet. That was kind of the whole thing. It was at or above, and it's like, okay, we're skirting that gray line, and now it's really like, just, we'll talk about it. Anyways. They found that continued development of equipment and computer programs to measure and monitor the atmosphere could permit forecasters to produce real-time warnings that define specific locations of potentially hazardous atmospheric icing conditions, including freezing drizzle and freezing rain, and short-range forecasts, or nowcasts, 
that identify icing conditions for a specific geographic area with a valid time of two hours or less. So very much more condensed forecast down to the two-hour accuracy. But also the freezing drizzle and freezing rain thing, we talk about this maybe a lot more in our normal day-to-day lives these days. This wasn't common terminology in aviation at the time. Which is bizarre to me. This is why it wasn't really something considered a danger yet. It's not that necessarily people didn't know this existed. Drive around in a humid place where it's cold for a while and this happens every now and again. It's not really the issue. The issue is that in aviation it wasn't really a recognized term or issue. And now it's like big. Yeah. (laughs) Now it comes to the forefront. They found that the code, the 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 25, Appendix C, envelope, is limited and does not include conditions of freezing drizzle or freezing rain. Thus, the current process by which aircraft are certified using the Appendix C icing envelope is inadequate and does not require manufacturers to sufficiently demonstrate the airplane's capabilities in all possible icing conditions that can and do occur in nature. There you go. They found that no airplane should be authorized or certified for flight into icing conditions more severe than those to which the airplane was subjected in certification testing unless the manufacturer can otherwise demonstrate the safety of flight in such conditions or certify it with those conditions, basically. Talk a lot more about that. They had really hard on this in the recommendations. We found that if the FAA had acted more positively upon the Safety Board's aircraft icing recommendations issued in 1981, the accident may not have occurred. <sighs> I gonna, hate when this happens! They're going to start playing the blame game a lot here. They found that the ATR-42 and 72 ice-induced aileron hinge moment reversals, autopilot disconnects, and rapid uncommanded rolls could occur if the airplanes are operated in near-freezing temperatures and water droplet median volume diameter, typical of freezing drizzle. We found that at the initiation of the aileron hinge moment reversal affecting Flight 4184, the 60 pounds of force on the control wheel required to maintain a wing's level attitude were within the standards set forth by the FAA, the Federal Aviation Regulations. However, rapid uncommanded rolls and the Sudden onset of 60 pounds of control wheel force without any warning to the pilot or training for such unusual events would most likely preclude a flight crew from making a timely recovery. What that really means is if they knew it was going to happen or if they had any indication that that was going to happen, they could have recovered. They could have kept the airplane wings level because it only would have required 60 pounds at the time. But as soon as that aileron deflects, then immediately it's too much force for them. Yeah, 250 pounds. The problem is is that they have to be able to know that it's going to happen before it does. And how are they going to know that when, one, the airplane's on autopilot and they're not holding the controls, and two, they didn't know this could happen? (laughs) So. That's tragic. Basically preventable if you can predict the future, but what accident really isn't that way? Mm Mm-hmm. They found that prior to the Roselawn accident, ATR recognized the reason for aileron behavior in the previous incidents and determined that ice accumulation behind the de-ice boots at an angle of attack sufficient to cause an airflow separation would cause the ailerons to become unstable. Therefore, ATR had sufficient basis to modify the airplane 
and or provide operators and pilots with adequate, detailed information regarding this phenomenon. That whole predict future thing I just said, basically they said ATR could have predicted the future and said... This you is could have you done something it. about this. The suggestion that comes up in the recommendations is that anytime the ATR is flown into known icing conditions, it should be hand-flown. Mm-hmm. Because then you can feel it. Instead of having the autopilot direct yes. it. So yeah, that's the thing. They found that the 1989 icing simulation package developed by ATR for the training simulators did not provide training for pilots to recognize the onset of an aileron hinge moment reversal or to execute the appropriate recovery techniques. They knew about the situation, and they still didn't train on it. They found that the 1992 ATR all-weather operations brochure was misleading and minimized the known catastrophic potential of ATR operations in freezing rain. Again, beating around the bush. Right. But it is your fault. It is. They found that ATR failed to disseminate adequate warnings and guidance to operators about the adverse characteristics of and techniques to recover from Ice-induced aileron hinge moment reversal events and ATR failed to develop additional airplane modifications, which led directly to this accident. They blamed ATR right there. Hands down. They knew, and they didn't do anything about it. We haven't really talked too much about the DGAC, but they place basically all of the exact same blame on the DGAC. Which is the French Directorate General for Civil Aviation, in case you're wondering. Yeah, exactly. Basically, it's the French equivalent of the FAA. It is their job to certify aircraft to be airworthy. Yep. And the fact that, really, in icing conditions, the ATRs are not airworthy. Right. Falls on the DGAC for not finding that. But why is that so important? I mean, yes, of course, they didn't find it. But we have the FAA. Right. There's a thing involved with this. We'll talk a little bit about coming up here. Found that the FAA's failure following the 1994 Continental Express incident at Burlington, Massachusetts to require the additional actions be taken to alert operators and pilots to be the specific icing-related problems affecting the ATRs and to require action by the manufacturer to remedy the airplane's propensity for aileron hinge moment reversals in certain icing conditions contributed to this accident. The FAA knew too. And now they we're didn't do anything really either. blaming everybody. Yeah. No. I think, though, the big problem is is it started popping up a while before this happened, right? And we've yeah. we've talked about this happening with other aircraft, too. The DC-10, you know, and some stuff with the 737, where stuff starts popping up, and then it starts happening more than once. And then you're like, maybe there's a problem with the design of the aircraft. And no one's willing to but, accept blame. Yeah, but no one's willing to do anything about it. Right. So now we're going to talk a little bit about this thing that exists. There's two, actually. We found that the ability of the FAA's AEG, or Aircraft Evaluation Group, to monitor on a real-time basis the continued airworthiness of the ATR airplanes was hampered by the inadequate defined lines of communication, the inadequate means for the AEG to retrieve pertinent airworthiness information, and the DGAC's failure to provide the FAA with critical airworthiness information because of the DGAC's apparently belief that the information was not required to be provided under the terms of the Bilateral Airworthiness Agreement, or BAA. These deficiencies also raise concerns about the scope and effectiveness of the BAA. Let's talk about the AEG and the BAA for just a second. Good grief. I know. 
The BAA means that when the DGAC certifies an airplane, the bilateral agreement, airworthiness agreement, means that these are the standards set forth internationally, and when they're certified by any one of those, the FAA can also take that airworthiness and apply it to the U.S. But maybe we shouldn't just take their word for it. Maybe we should also... Trust but verify? Yeah. Test the airplanes, make sure that they can be flown in our country without being disasters. So a lot of things have changed over time. And of course, one of those things being the EASA and the FAA. And now they each have their own certification program. This is why the DGAC is not really talked about anymore instead of the EASA, because the EASA is the one that has to certify Airbus instead of the DGAC. And same with ATR little bit of aviation history. Aerospatial, who made ATRs, is now Airbus. Yes. They are, were produced in Toulouse. They are produced in Toulouse. Right. It's still it's still kind of its own company. They're a conglomerate. Yes. But if you look at the Wikipedia, it says Aerospatial is now Airbus. Yes. It's the wholly owned thing. And Aerospatial also produced the BAE-146 and also produced the Concorde. Aerospatial also partnered with an Italian company, I can't remember the name of, to make ATR. So it wasn't purely Aerospatial, but no. they were the ones purely involved almost exclusively in this investigation, to the best of my knowledge. Right. This is why it was ATR, because it's Aerospatial and then whatever the other... A joint venture formed by French aerospace company Aerospatial, now Airbus, and Italian aviation conglomerate Aeritalia, now Leonardo SPA. Okay. The number 72 is in its name is derived from the aircraft's Standard seating configuration and a passenger carrying configuration, which mm-hmm. could seat 72 passengers. And guess how many of the 42 fit? 42. Wow, what a shock. <laughs> <laughs> you figured it out. Oh. Yep. We cracked the code. You cracked the code. <laughs> the AEG, the FAA's AEG, or Aircraft Evaluation Group, this is an ongoing group that is intended to monitor aircraft airworthiness after certification. So this being a foreign certified aircraft now brought into the U.S. and they're using an FAA worthiness based on the bilateral agreement, the AEG is supposed to monitor this aircraft now over time and keep track of anything that might be a concern in the airworthiness and report this both back to the FAA, but also to the DGAC and the rest of the world. Basically, they're just helping the airworthiness issues with this. Essentially, they should have known, and they should have been able to report on the airworthiness problems, and it was found that they just didn't. How many balls need to be dropped? I I find that so hard to believe, considering the DGAC and the FAA both were aware there were problems with icings on this aircraft. Yes. And decided to do nothing, and the AEG just was like... We don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? You're full of shit. Yes. That whole thing probably was buried. So the fun part of that is that the NTSB had no idea about any of this until they went to ATR. And ATR's like, yeah, we know. It's, this is what's going on. <laughs> Literally ATR. The, the engineer was French and they had to have an interpreter and everything. And once like the investigator was able, they depict this in the episode, but he even explained it. He's like, once the interpreter was able to ask the question that I was posing to him about this accident and they had seen the data, the engineer explained exactly what happened to the airplane. 
It's how the investigators actually came to the final conclusion. Because ATR already knew. They knew so much so. They were ahead of the investigators. The investigators went and asked, and they were... The engineers at ATR were literally like, yeah, this is exactly how it's freezing to the airplane and why. And this is exactly how it's causing a problem on the airplane. We know. Then do something. Then fix it. (laughs) I'm sorry if you know, then do something about it. Honestly, to me, the biggest thing that probably would have fixed this... Fly-by-wire. Yeah. Because the airplane is, like, manual cable-driven and all of that, or hydraulic or whatever, but even then it's, like, it's all manual, and they have to actually put that amount of force. If it had been fly-by-wire with hydraulics, it probably would have been able to overcome the forces, because it's based on the amount of input Mm -hmm. on the control by an angle, not force. Well, now we know. Anyways, just me thinking. They found that the nearby air traffic control facilities were aware the light I- that light icing conditions were forecast for the area of the Lucet intersection. Nonetheless, the release of Flight 4184 from Indianapolis was proper because there were viable options for pilots who chose to avoid holding in icing conditions. That means that they had the option not to hold in the cloud. Well, and they had asked to change their holding prior to. Yes, they did. That said... They were put in this holding condition, and it wasn't necessarily the wrong thing, though, because they didn't know... That there was icing conditions. That it was so bad. Talk a little bit about this, but there was a PIREP just a little bit before they got to that holding point from an aircraft ahead of them. I believe it was a King Air, I'm not sure. That had also reported there was light icing conditions, but they didn't think it was anything of concern. And the air traffic controller didn't relay this information to the pilots because they assumed they heard it. Yeah, don't assume. Right. Never assume. There's a saying about that. Right. They found that under the circumstances on the day of the accident, the controllers acted appropriately in the management of traffic flow into O'Hare International Airport, which necessitated the holding of Flight 4184 in the Boone sector. Basically, they still didn't do anything wrong. Nope. It was just a thing. They found that neither the flight attendant's presence in the cockpit nor the flight crew's conversations with her contributed to the accident. However, a sterile cockpit environment would probably have reduced flight crew's distractions and could have promoted an appropriate level of flight crew awareness for the conditions in which the airplane was being operated. But they couldn't prove that. Exactly. They couldn't prove it. And the problem that I have with this one, they were doing everything they were trained to do in an icing condition. Yeah. The airplane was... Configured correctly. Configured for the icing conditions. It's not their fault. They found that had ice accumulated on the wing leading edge edges so as to burden the ice protection system, or if the crew had been able to observe the ridge of ice building behind the de-ice boots or otherwise been provided a means of determining that an unsafe condition was developing from holding in those icing conditions, it is probable that the crew would have exited the conditions. So, about this. Yes. Normally, you can look back at your wing and be like, oh, yeah, there's ice. I can see it on top of the wing. Mm-hmm. ATRs are a high wing. They are a high wing. You can't see on top of the wing. You can see the leading edge, but you can't see the top of the wing. Because it's like flying in a Cessna with Brendan. It's a high wing. Right. So part of their suggestion here, basically, offhandedly, they don't really say this ever out loud, is that there should be some kind of sensing device that says, hey, there's icing behind the boot. I don't know if this ever came to be a thing on the ATR, but it seems smart to me. Well, it's only flown in southern... Areas now. It's only flown in very warm conditions, generally. Where it won't have that problem anymore. Correct. 
It's not to say that it wouldn't, but anymore they're prohibited from flying into known icing conditions because of On this. autopilot. It still has the boots and all of the de-icing protection for the times that it's flown into icing conditions not knowing, because it does happen. You fly into a rainstorm and you don't expect it to be icing, but all of a sudden you encounter it. It's happened. It can happen. And turns out that happens a lot down south. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough. They found that the captain's departure from the cockpit to use the restroom while the airplane was in the holding pattern was neither prohibited by federal regulations nor inconsistent with Simmons Airlines AMR Eagle policies and procedures and did not contribute to the accident. I mean, no, because he was no. in the cockpit when things really went wrong. Went south. Huh. That aren't... But... As we've talked about in previous episodes and in my Miranda sode for June... Mm-hmm. It's not great no. to do that. You really should have two people in the cockpit. <laughs> They're like, not prohibited, but... You shouldn't do that. Not Advised. great idea. Right. It's one of those things that's like, really? Do we have to make a rule for this? Or can you just do the right thing? I don't know. I mean, to be fair, there were no holding pattern. Nothing was changing. Absolutely nothing. He had time. Anyway. Anyway. They found that both pilots saw the ground, realized their close proximity and high descent rate, and made a nose-up elevator input that combined with the high airspeed, about 115 knots over the certified maximum operating airspeed, resulted in excessive wing loading and structural failure of the outboard sections of the wings. Like I said, the ends of the wings broke before they impacted. But I mean that fast before they impacted. Not consequential. No, it really wasn't. I mean... That said, if they had managed to recover the airplane, it probably would have been a dire situation from there because they wouldn't have had enough lift yeah. because they were lo- they lost part of the wing. Yeah. I find that although both f- crew members of Flight 4184 were certified flight instructors, this was probably the first time they had experienced such unexpected and excessive roll and pitch attitudes in the ATR-72. If the operators had been a- required to conduct unusual attitude training, the knowledge from this training might have assisted the flight crew in its recovery efforts and might have promoted the captain to provide useful information to the first officer to facilitate a timely recovery of the airplane. I don't know about that. It happens so fast, and this is really beyond their control, but I understand what they're saying. They're both instructors in the airplane because they're both very knowledgeable, but... They really couldn't have done anything. They didn't even know what the hell was going on to begin with. Right. They knew enough to try to get out of a stall. Yeah, but they didn't know it was caused from icing. They did all the things that they were supposed to for icing. Yep. And how would they to know that it was icing behind the boot? There was no way for them to know. Exactly. Nope. So here's the probable cause. It is much longer than usual. So buckle up. I am sufficiently buckled. All right. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of this accident were the loss of control attributed to a sudden and unexpected aileron hinge moment reversal that occurred after a ridge of ice accreted beyond the de-ice boots because, one, ATR failed to completely disclose to operators and incorporate in the ATR-72 airplane flight manual, flight crew operating manual, and flight crew training programs adequate information concerning previously known effects of freezing precipitation on the stability and control characteristics, autopilot, and related operational procedures when the ATR-72 was in such conditions. Two, 
the French Directorate General for Civil Aviation, DGAC's, inadequate oversight of the ATR-42 and 72 and its failure to take the necessary corrective action to ensure continued airworthiness in icing conditions, and three, the DGAC's failure to provide the FAA with timely airworthiness information developed from previous ATR incidents and accidents in icing conditions, as specified under the Bilateral Airworthiness Agreement and Annex 8 of the International Civil Aviation Organization, otherwise known as the ICAO. Contributing to the accident were, one, the Federal Aviation Administration's failure to ensure that aircraft icing certification requirements, operational requirements for flight into icing conditions, and FAA-published aircraft icing information adequately accounted for the hazards that can result from flight in freezing rain and other icing conditions not specified in 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 25, Appendix C. And two, the FAA's inadequate oversight of the ATR-42 and 72 to ensure continued airworthiness in icing conditions. <sighs> <sighs> that was a probable causes. That All of that. All of that. If I ran through that way too fast, you can look it up in the report. It's on page 210 of the report, which is page 228 of the PDF. Long episode comes with a long probable cause because this is very important, actually. Yes. Well, now, as we've talked about, they don't fly in icing right. conditions. Anymore. Which became actually an issue because there were quite a few airlines in the world who were like, we shouldn't, including American Eagle. What? They were like, well, crap, now we have all these airplanes. What do we do with them? They continued to fly them for a handful of years, but eventually they just became so useless on the routes that they needed to fly them on. Like, they, they needed these airplanes really where they were flying them originally. But they had to come up with other options because they couldn't fly them where they wanted to fly them, i.e. Chicago. So right now the primary users of the ATR-72 are Wings Air, Azul Linas Aéreas, which is in South America. Brazil. Indigo. And Air New Zealand. Hmm. That one is kind of strange. The primary users of the ATR-42 are FedEx. Yes. Aeromar. Silver Airways, and here's the weird one to me. Canadian North. Yes. They do still fly them. Let me to explain. When you Please go, do. But Canadian. When you go well below freezing point, you don't have these problems. <laughs> you don't have freezing rain and drizzle. Yeah. It's just ice. It's just ice. <laughs> it's actually a really efficient airplane in super cold conditions. Great. So just it works like in really North really well Canada. Right. Okay. So it works really well for them. Aeromar is Mexico, so that makes a lot of sense. Hot. Yes. And, of course, silver, which is the south. So, hot. Recomendaciones? Yeah, let's do some recommendations. Please tell me there's not a lot of them. There were a ton, but I didn't pick a lot. I picked actually only a few. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I don't you know can probably them, guess most of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've already talked about so many of them at this point. Fix the ATR. Which I kind of... That's why I've skipped so many of them, because we've already talked a lot about the things that just... It just makes sense. We already know. They've fixed a lot of things. That's just how it is. They recommend revising the icing criteria published in 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 23 and 25, in light of both recent research into aircraft ice accretion under varying conditions of liquid water content, drop size distribution, temperature, and recent developments in both the design and use of aircraft. Also expand the Appendix C icing certification envelope to include freezing drizzle, freezing rain, 
and mixed water slash ice crystal conditions as necessary. So changing the verbiage a little bit to include these situations more than just like normal icing, like this is a thing, this can happen, and it definitely does require the aircraft to be certified to that. That way this just isn't a problem. They recommend revising the icing certification testing regulation to ensure that airplanes are properly tested for all conditions in which they are authorized to operate or are otherwise shown to be capable of safe flight into such conditions. If safe operation cannot be demonstrated by the manufacturer, operational limitations should be imposed to prohibit flight in such conditions, and flight crews should be provided with the means to positively determine when they are in icing conditions that exceed the limits for aircraft certification. They changed where the ATR is allowed to fly prohibit it from flying into known icing conditions. They just did because it just it's a limitation on the aircraft. They couldn't prove that they could certify it with the conditions that it flew into in this accident. They recommend requiring all aircraft manufacturers to provide as part of the certification criteria information to the FAA and operators about any known undesirable characteristics of flight beyond the protected flight regime. So if you know there's a problem, you have to tell everyone. Right. You can't just keep that to yourself. Right. And this goes for, like, over time, not just at certification, but that's kind of also what they're saying is, like, if you knew that something was kind of strange about this airplane at certification... You should have told somebody. But if you find out there's something after the fact, you should tell tell someone. Yes. Yeah, the fact that you already knew about it and you didn't do anything about it... Is a problem. A huge problem. Yes. Yes, it is. They recommend encouraging ATR to test the newly developed lateral control system design changes and upon verification of the improved or corrected hinge moment reversal slash uncommanded aileron deflection problems, require these design changes on all new and existing ATR airplanes. So basically they did come up with a solution. They're saying that ATR along the way with the investigation found some way to fix this problem and they should implement it on all future and current ATRs to prevent this from happening in the future. What I know is that they did implement several changes to the airplane to keep this from happening. Over time, obviously, there's a lot more of them. People still don't trust them enough to fly into ice, so they still don't. Also, they're not exactly the right airplane for a lot of markets anymore, so that's kind of why they stick to the markets where they do work, and most markets, there's something else that has come along over the years to fit better. CRJs, ERJs, and the likes. They recommend requiring all principal operations inspectors, or POIs, of 14 CFR Part 121 and 135 operators to ensure that training programs include information about all icing conditions, including flight into freezing drizzle slash freezing rain conditions. Why this came up is because the principal inspectors saw how they were training on these airplanes and basically said, okay, the training is adequate to the requirements given. However... It wasn't. It wasn't adequate for what the airplane might actually fly into. Not that they knew that. Right. They didn't really know that. But what they're saying is that these inspectors should have said something about, hey, you're not training enough on this specific area. Yeah. They recommend developing an organizational structure and a communication system that will enable the Aircraft Evaluation Group, or AEG, to obtain and record all domestic and foreign aircraft and parts-slash-systems manufacturers' reports and analyses concerning incidents and accidents involving aircraft types operated in the United States and ensure that the information is collected in a timely manner for effective AEG monitoring of the continued airworthiness of aircraft. Looking around the world, figuring out what's going on with the airplane and how airworthiness, how the airworthiness is affected over time. Don't keep your head stuck in the sand. Pretty much. 
pretty much exactly that. They recommend evaluating the need to require a sterile cockpit environment for airplanes holding in such weather conditions as heising and convective activity, regardless of altitude. Interesting. Yeah. So this is one that I definitely kept in here because it was like, we didn't talk about it because, yes, they're in a holding pattern. But they were above 10,000. Right? But they were above, and they were above 10,000. So technically they're... Supposed to be. They're not, well, they're not, they're, they don't have to be in a sterile cockpit. It's like, okay, it doesn't really matter. Except that when you're they're in a holding cold. pattern, it's still kind of a critical point of flight because at any moment things could change. And also, more importantly, they're holding in precipitation, which is very critical. And that's kind of what they're getting at here. They're like, change some of the sterile cockpit rules to include times outside of just below 10,000 feet. Did that change? I don't know exactly, but I'm guessing so. It just seems like common sense to me that when an aircraft is maybe in unfavorable conditions, time pay to pay attention. attention. Yeah. Time to pay attention. Yeah. Clearly, you're holding for a reason. Pay attention. It is the reason you're you're there. It is your job. Listening to music and like talking to your friends, probably not a good time. Right. It wasn't <laughs> illegal, so they didn't place any blame because it also didn't change anything about the actions. No, I'm and obviously. It's just not great because right. you're the, not in a in a concentrated mind state. Right. The real reason that they put this in here, we'll talk about it, is because ATR released a report before the NTSB that blamed the pilots for the accident. Which is garbage. That is garbage. They said it wasn't the airplane. It was poor piloting because they were distracted and they were doing all these different things. And so they weren't aware of the conditions and they... Lost control of the airplane and crash. Wrong. The NTSB is like, no, this was not preventable. It was an airplane issue. And this had nothing to You're do with You're trying to cover your ass. So yeah. the NTSB is like, okay, remove that piece. <laughs> They're like, we see and understand why you're concerned, even though it has nothing to do with what actually happened in the accident. But... If we changed that, this still would have happened. Yeah. Um, I don't think the sterile cockpit rules have changed. And it may not have. I am reading this on NASA's website, mm-hmm. which pulls from the FAR part 121.542C, which is also the same in the FAR part 135.100C. For the purposes of this section, critical phase of flight involves all ground operations involving taxi, takeoff, and landing, and all other flight operations conducted below 10,000 feet except cruise flight. So if you're cruising below 10,000 feet, you don't have to have a sterile cockpit. Sure. Yeah. But that doesn't mention holding. Right. Or weather. Right. I feel like it might be, though, potentially specifically in airline yes. standard operating procedures. It just seems like a smart thing to do. Yeah, it's like... Be aware of what you're doing. Like, I understand it could be kind of boring, but be aware. Right. If anyone who's a pilot or otherwise knows any better, please let us know. Yep. This is one I'm definitely curious about. They recommend conducting or sponsoring research and development of onboard aircraft ice protection and detection systems that will detect and alert flight crews when the airplane is encountering freezing drizzle and freezing rain and accreting resultant ice. So... Exactly what I was said before, like... Have a sensor. A sensor, and a system that automatically is like, hey, problem, big problem. There's so many different sensors, but today's technology, this should not be difficult. Oh, yeah, no. This is something that I think a lot of airplanes already have. 
Not really an issue with most airplanes, though. They recommend developing methods to produce weather forecasts that both define specific locations of atmospheric icing conditions, including freezing drizzle and freezing rain, and that produce short-range forecasts, or nowcasts, that identify icing conditions for a specific geographic area with a valid time of two hours or less. Ensure the timely dissemination of all significant findings to the aviation community in an appropriate manner. So just making these nowcasts possible because of technology, which these days is very possible. And these days they have the information directly in the cockpit on yeah. tablets usually. They don't even have to ask for it anymore. To American Eagle, they recommend requiring dispatchers to include in the flight release Airmen's Meteorological Information, or AirMets, and center weather advisories, or CWAs, that are pertinent to the route of flight so that air crews can consider this information in their pre-flight and in-flight decisions so that they didn't have to hold in icing conditions. Mm-hmm. They recommend encouraging captains to observe a, quote, sterile cockpit, end quote, environment when an airplane is holding, regardless of altitude and meteorological conditions, such as convective areas or icing conditions that have the potential to demand significant attention of a flight crew. So kind of a similar thing, but this is more specifically aimed at the airline's captains. So kind of leaving it up to the airline again. They recommend conducting a procedural audit to eliminate existing conflicts and guidance and procedures between the air flight manuals, flight operations manuals, and other published materials. So obviously, really, there shouldn't be conflict between them. Right. Obviously, there's some sort of miscommunication because there's conflicting information between different manuals when it comes to flying these airplanes. One last one. They recommend prohibiting the intentional operation of ATR-42 and ATR-72 airplane in known or reported icing conditions until the effect of upper wing surface ice on the flying qualities and aileron hinge moment characteristics are examined further, as recommended in A-94-181, and it is determined the airplane exhibits satisfactory flight characteristics. And I don't think it's necessarily that they haven't been able to demonstrate that it can do that. It's just still not a good idea. And the public at the time was so concerned with this, and so much of the aviation community is still like, no. <laughs> that they just don't fly them in those conditions. Yeah, I'm still wigged out. Mm-hmm. So that's really it. I mean, that's, that's everything I covered. There's, of course, a ton more recommendations if you want to go read them. There's a ton more findings if you want to go read them. Mostly to the point of everything we already talked about. They hit a lot at the FAA, the DJAC, and the ATR because of... The fact that they all knew this. Yeah. They already knew. And they still let it happen. That's my big problem. That and the FAA and the DGAC and basically everyone and their mother knew that there was a problem with this and then they just didn't do anything about it. Yep. This, these were avoidable deaths. And the fact that the yep. pilots had to make documentation right. and strike in order for them to look into this is ridiculous. Right. The uh, pilot in question, did you state that he was fired? What? What? You didn't say that? No. Yeah, he was let go. You didn't hear that in the episode? I was frantically typing. After the news. Oh, the. The news thing Steve that he did. Steve Frederick? Yeah, Steve Frederick. After the news bit that Appearance. he did where he did anonymous, they knew it was him and they fired him. I... That's wrongful termination. Mm -hmm. But uh, he kept pushing for changes to the ATR after that. He. Because he he still, wrote a book. Yep. It's, I'm pretty sure it's called Unheated Warning. So yep. that's tragic. It is tragic. Dang. 
All right, friendos, I hope you enjoyed this ridiculously long episode. Do, I know I'm going to love editing it. <laughs> do not expect a post-episode. It is 11.08 p.m. at the we time. We might do like a 10-minute something or Don't other. expect a lot. Yeah. It's not going to be a long one if we even do one. So You've gotten a lot of long ones recently. Yes. We might do a sort chat about what we're doing this weekend, and then that's it. Yeah. Other than that, thank you for listening. That was American Eagle 4184. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you. Thanks to all our patrons, all our new patrons. If you want to look at Patreon, see what's included, it's on our website. We also pull up on Patreon if you look up our podcast. Yep. Also, best way to, uh, you know, be cool and support us. One, word of mouth is great. Two, giving us a recommendation or uh, a... Subscribe. Review. And review. a review. I was like looking for another R word. A review on a platform. You can do so on Apple Podcasts. You can also give us a rating on Spotify if you're listening on Spotify. And you take a look at our merch store. See if you, there's anything you want to buy. There is stuff on there that is fairly inexpensive that people have bought recently, like stickers and pins and things like that. Those are pretty inexpensive. Yeah. I, I do realize there's plenty of stuff on there that is ridiculous and outlandish and like we wanted it luggage which is why we <laughs> put it on there uh but take a look you might never know you might be like hey you know what i'm gonna buy that yeah today. i'd buy a yeah. hundred dollar luggage or whatever it is uh, not, not that specifically <laughs> sure thanks so much for listening we hope you have a safe and healthy week and we will catch you all next week keep, keep your speed up please like and follow us on facebook and instagram at hard landings podcast and on twitter at hard landings pod Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.